Welcome to Footy Time. And in the words of someone we all know, what a big weekend it's been in footy. I'm your host, Johnny Raff, and joining me to recap this unbelievable weekend is none other than Daniel Andrews. Dan, what a weekend. Yeah, it was great fun and uh, sets up for an amazing grand final. But yeah, plenty to talk about. And uh, yeah, a prelim final that I'm sure will be remembered for quite a while. Probably would have been remembered for a little longer if the result changed uh, hands in the last few seconds. But uh, yeah, an amazing game. Yeah, when all is said and done, there's quite a lot of opinion and conjecture around the way the AFL operates and carries out business. But after this weekend and this final series and the standard of footy, the way the game looks to the eye, I think it's fair to say the game's in pretty good shape. Would you agree, Dan? Yeah, I think this has been one of the best seasons in a long time. And, you know, last season was good too. So it's definitely trending in an upward direction. And if you look at what might be to come in the next few years in terms of, you know, a few other contenders emerging, I guess Carlton's probably the main one I'm thinking of there. And, you know, you'd expect Melbourne to come again, Richmond will try and refresh. There's probably going to be some pretty good competition in the next few years as well. So, yeah, good things ahead and we've had a very enjoyable season, that's for sure. Yeah, I agree. I think it's been one of the best seasons in a long time. Uh, we'll kick things off because we've got a lot to get through and we're going to start with the second preliminary final on Saturday afternoon at the SCG. Um, Dan, this was one for the ages, as you said. Where do we start? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to go through with this one, so we're going to do a couple of different things. We'll do a bit of a quarter-by-quarter quarter rundown with a bit of discussion in between. I've also gone back and looked at what I thought were probably the uh, six of the most significant plays on the day, so just for how good a game this was, I thought it was worth going back and picking apart some of the really important plays. So we'll have a go at that as well, and uh, there's a couple of questions to finish as well. So... Uh, obviously, this was the second of the preliminary finals played. Uh, the opponent was already known in terms of Geelong. A lot of Pies fans travelled up to Sydney to uh, see if their team could do it at the SCG. And I think this was the first final that had been played at the SCG in about 20 years because they were playing the ball at ANZ Stadium. So nice mm. to have me back at the SCG for a final. Hey, yeah. Johnny. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, great to see, I guess... Well, you wouldn't call it the traditional home of the Swans, but uh, that's where they play the majority of their home games. So, yeah, yeah, it was a great atmosphere by the look of it. All right, let's jump into the first quarter. So it was the Swans that started with all the running with the first four goals on the board inside about eight minutes. They were linking up really well early and uh, contesting well inside 50, whether it be in the air or on the ground. And there was a large amount of pressure every time Collingwood had the ball. Collingwood did find a way to get a couple of goals back, though, by continuing to ga- take the game on, as they often do. Uh, but really, uh, the game had turned into a bit of a shootout uh, when a snap from Warner from about 50 out near the boundary found a way to dribble through after evading a few sets of players. And uh, that was answered with a Jack Crisp running goal straight out of the center square stoppage. So uh, it was high-octane footy, that's for sure. Uh and uh, two very late goals to Sydney as well stretched the margin out to 21 points. So, yeah, it was a bit all over the place in this first quarter, but Sydney definitely on top. Uh, so, Johnny, a question for you. What did you think Sydney were actually doing that was causing Collingwood so many problems? Well, I think the pressure was turned up to 11 because those 
four goals to start the game were all from turnovers. Uh, yeah, we know how important that is at the moment. And yeah, I think maybe Collingwood were just a little bit shell-shocked at the start. But yeah, the Swans definitely came to play. And uh, they ma- they had some good matchups too. They uh, went with Ryan Clark to Nick Dacos again. And Dacos had about 10 touches in the first couple of quarters. So um, yeah, they had a plan and they were executing. Yeah, they seem to be linking up really well, uh, like sharing the ball, like going relatively quickly but not crazily quickly that meant that they could still retain possession most of the time as they were sort of transitioning down the ground, which I guess limited the Swans, uh, the Pies' ability to basically turn it over and come back quickly the other way. So uh, I guess that's probably one of the reasons why they do match up pretty well against Collingwood because they don't rely on... Uh, either like going extremely quickly or like long kicks in. So if you, I suppose if you're doing either of those things, you're kind of playing into hot Collingwood's hands a little. But Sydney definitely wasn't doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we said last week that this game was likely to be decided by who could control the corridor better, and that was definitely the case in the first quarter. It was all Swans either going through there or sealing it off. So. Yeah. It was very- impressive by Collingwood though that they still managed to take the game on enough, even when everything seemed to be going on against them to actually get a couple of goals back yep. here. Because uh, I suppose the way it was looking in that first sort of eight to ten minutes, it looked like the game could be sort of over in a quarter if they couldn't get things going. And for a while there, it was looking a little shaky. Yeah, no, they were getting their chances. And, uh, yeah, very important because they needed to stay in touch. It, yeah, they could have been blown out of the water. But it, it suggested there, there were going to be goals in this game. For sure. It was quite a free-flowing game for a final, even though the pressure was quite high. Yep. All right, let's see, let's see what happens next. 21-point lead to the Swans. So in the second, it really felt like Collingwood threw absolutely everything they could at Sydney, but Sydney seemed to be able to take these punches and throw them right back. Uh, there were centre-bounce goals, uh, Sydney Fords taking plenty of marks inside 50, and it all added up to 18 scoring shots for the half to Sydney to lead by 31 points. Uh, and this was all despite very accurate 7-1 from Collingwood. So they were still scoring, but Sydney were just scoring more. 57% forward efficiency on their shots for goal there compared to 30% for Collingwood. So they would each had 30 inside 50s, but obviously the Swans were making a lot more of them. Uh, and one of the signature moments in this quarter was uh, came with Warner bursting through the middle uh, and uh, getting it deep to Buddy, who brought it to ground, and uh, getting inside 50 there as well, leading to another Swans goal. So, uh, yeah, obviously lots happening in this quarter again, Johnny. Yeah. Uh, how did you see the quarter playing out here? Yeah, it was just... It was really ebbing and flowing with the momentum this game, but... Uh, one thing I did notice was um, Scott Pendlebury was really busy early on. With I think he had, I reckon he had at least ten good disposals in the first quarter and a bit. Uh, so they decided to put the uh, Mister Fixit Callum Mills on him, and um, he kept him to just one in this quarter. So another great move by John Longmore, who's known for his in-game adjustments. Uh, we probably have to mention the fifty-meter penalty for Jack Inman or against Jack Inman. Uh, it, it, I haven't seen it played this year. Uh, it did seem a little harsh. <laughs> it, it, um, <laughs> Quite yeah, harsh. Look, it was, it's the, the drawback of 
I guess, well, it's not really part of the stand rule, isn't it? Is it just part of the... the yeah, nine, no, just the, the nine-meter rule. The nine-meter rule, back, yeah. So, yeah, they would always tell the player, but for some reason this time they didn't tell him to come back. It was just 50 straight away. Yeah. Maybe just a bit I, of a brain fade from the umpire there. I think, yeah, yeah. Um, you probably won't see that paid again. <laughs> it hasn't been paid before. Uh, but, yeah, yeah, like it was five goals in it, but, again, you just thought there was a long way to go. Pendleby was incredible in this match. So just how well he was, you know, linking up, always a cool head under pressure. But yep. he, it's not hard to argue that he's still probably Collingwood's best player, even at his age. No, it's not. It's not hard to argue at all. He's still regularly getting 30 touches in the game. Uh, just, yeah, super composed. His running ability is actually underrated as well, I reckon. Yeah, every time he gets the ball in his hands, it's just all quality. He makes the right decision and can hit all different types of kicks. So I guess maybe from the outside of Collingwood, he just is that little bit underrated now because he's been around doing it for so yeah. long, but he's still playing at an extremely high level. He certainly is. I don't see any reason why he couldn't play another two seasons. So the fact that the Swans were up by, uh, what was it at that point? About 31 points, did you say? Uh, did you feel like it was their game at this point or did you feel Collingwood was still doing enough to actually think that they were still a chance here? Yeah, that's yeah, it's a really good question because I think the Swans were well on top in the in the intercept game. I think they had scored, well, they'd scored six goals, one to Collingwood's one from, I'm not sure if that's, just intercepts or if it's from turnover but it, it did look like they had really wrestled control of the game and it was on their terms uh but just seeing what we've seen from Collingwood this year it was really hard to rule them out can't write them off yeah no. Sydney's inside 50 efficiency was through the roof I think Collingwood has had you know been one of the better teams at defending inside 50s but it almost looked like every time it was going inside 50, they were getting a one-on-one mark or, yep. you know, they were winning it on the ground. They just looked super dangerous. Obviously, Franklin and Heaney were doing a bit of damage, Papley as well. But, yeah, the, I don't know whether Collingwood kind of got their matchups wrong. Obviously, they were getting some good supply from further out the ground, but it really did look like they were all at sea back there. I know they were playing <coughs> Maynard on Franklin, which seems to have been questions a bit in the aftermath. Uh, and then they changed that in the second half, and it seemed to help them a little bit. Yep. But, uh, yeah, was it just one of those things, or did Collingwood get this a little bit wrong? Um, I think they <clears> did get it a little bit wrong. I think, especially in the first quarter, I think there were some uncharacteristic defensive errors from Collingwood, but I didn't mind the matchup with Maynard. I thought it was it was a bold move. But, uh, yeah, I, I, it's very... It's very hard to match up on Sydney's forwards regardless. So, yeah. yeah. And that efficiency was incredible, 46% um, inside 50, yeah. The uh, point that uh, David King was making today was that, you know, Sydney target Franklin so often when they're going inside 50 and you're basically taking one of your best players away from where a lot of the ball is going in terms of Darcy Moore. So, like, why wouldn't you want your best player where he can have the most impact? It sort of almost seemed like the way he was describing it, it was like they were sort of taking Darcy Moore away from where the ball was going, which they obviously wouldn't want to do. Well, that's the logical 
uh, solution, I would have thought, to put more in that, that danger spot. He's very good with the ball in flight. But, um, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, you got to try these things sometimes. Maybe not in a big final, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, look, it was a big, it was definitely one of the bigger moves of the game. It was quite free-flowing for a final, though, wasn't it? Like, yeah, there, there was no difficulty in scoring. So, what, seven goals to Collingwood and what did Sydney have on the board? 11 or 12? So, it was a lot. I think it might have been yeah. 11. Yeah, I think it was 11. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so, it was, yeah, 30-point lead at half time yeah yeah it was it was it was good i think we you know it's good when these games come along every now and then you you see a bit you know a bit of scoring and uh it's not like they were easy goals i just think there was some really good football played yeah i guess it helped with the accuracy as well particularly from collingwood and yeah they have been very accurate when they had to hang into game in games for example against the game uh the game against melbourne so in, a, in some ways, I think this game actually mirrors that game against Melbourne it in does. terms of Melbourne having the dominant first half. I guess it was Sydney and then Collingwood fighting their way back in. It's just funny that this time Sydney got the five-goal lead that Melbourne maybe couldn't quite get, and it's still... The one extra goal. Yeah. <laughs> and but it's it's still, still, it was still almost not enough. <laughs> still, yeah, which is crazy. All right, let's jump into the second half. So what happens here? So it was a bit of an arm wrestle early in the third and uh, Collingwood actually went for an inboard kick to what looked like an unmanned how, but it was actually McInerney reading the ball perfectly and basically in full stride, takes the mark and sprints towards goal and how had no chance of getting to him and that gave Sydney the uh, a 36-point lead. So that was a big, uh, <laughs> a big play there. Massive, massive blow there. And uh, yeah, I think at that point you just thought, the Swans would march on their way. So Collingwood kept at it, and slowly the game started to look a little bit more like a Collingwood game. They managed to get a nice stoppage goal to Josh Dacos, and at this point uh, they also found uh, Ginevan inside 50, about 45 out after a good link-up play coming out of defence, and there hadn't been too many of those clean plays for Collingwood uh, at least not coming straight through the middle like this one was. And Genevan steeled himself and got it through from distance there. Uh, but they were still 23 points down at this point. And, yeah, there was still a flicker, especially with the form Collingwood has shown in uh, the second half of the season in particular. But it did look like the game had changed a little bit in this quarter, Johnny. Collingwood were trying to do a few different things to uh, get the game back on their terms. So they talked in the commentary about how the Collingwood players were almost baiting some of the Sydney players to actually go a bit quicker by backing off off the mark, which it actually seemed to kind of work yeah. in a way, probably not all the time, but there were more long kicks in that Collingwood was able to either nullify quite quickly or intercept. Yeah, yeah, it was surprising actually. But um, yeah, it seemed to play into their hands. Uh, Pendlebury was back on top in this quarter. I, thought, I think he had uh, nine positions and four contested side bottom also lifted his game he had about seven disposals at 100 percent efficiency so yeah it was just slowly but surely moving back towards collingwood which was probably the last thing you'd expect after the McInerney goal but yeah before you knew it it was back to about a four goal game yeah it was a bit of an arm wrestle wasn't it obviously nowhere near as high scoring as the first half and uh 
two goals to the Swans and the Pies found a way to get a couple more, but it did feel like they had to work for these goals. Nothing was coming easy yeah. in this quarter, that's for sure. But they did actually, as I described there, set up some really nice goals with some good bits of play. So it did just start looking like things were clicking a little bit more for Collingwood here. They led the clearances 13 to 6 that quarter as well, so on top in the middle. So they definitely had their chance uh, to uh, you know, do the thing that Collingwood do and come back in the last quarter. So let's see what happens next. Just so, quickly, Dan. Oh, sure, go for uh, it. Heaney had that crucial shot on the, on the three-quarters on Siren. When he missed it, what were you thinking? Um, I guess I hadn't. I just, you know, it's just one of those ones you expect them to kick, and obviously it would have been huge if he'd kicked it. But I don't know. You just never. I'm never that surprised when players miss these shots. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. I guess I didn't think that much about it. It's just, you know, one of these ones that they should kick, but they miss. But yeah, you, you're right. If they were that one goal further down, the task looks a lot more difficult. That's what I thought. I just felt as soon as it missed, I thought the door is still quite open for Collingwood, <laughs> especially after what we've seen this year. Yeah, well, you'd expect that, you know, a 23-point lead in a final should be enough. You'd but, think uh, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's see. Was let's it see. enough? So uh, as soon as Bianco managed to kick the first goal of the last quarter at the 740-minute mark, it looked like the Pies' surge was in the offing. I remember thinking at the time that it's on. They'd just got their first sort of surge goal and there's still plenty of time to bring this back. So that brought it back to about 16 points at that point. And the backline look for Collingwood had now completely changed. They were intercept marking at will and turning the ball around. Particularly Darcy Moore was just in complete beast mode, taking on one or two opponents at a time. And it was the flankers and the mids getting on their bikes with some hard running through the middle as well as pockets of space started opening up more regularly. Going back the other way, a goal was somewhat gifted to Papley from a free, but now looking back at it, I thought it looked like uh, he actually pushed him in the side to me. So you, they don't pay those pushing the backs for in the side and uh, it looked like he'd taken the mark as well. So... Um, I'm happy with that decision. What about you, Johnny? How did you see that one? Yeah, a few things happening in this moment. Um, at the time, I definitely thought it was a push-out free kick. Uh, but there is one thing that makes it tricky as well. It's how much force does yeah. he actually put onto There's the back. There's a few things in that, right? Because it's like, is it fully in the back and how much force are you actually allowed to use? Yeah, and looking at it a few times, I think it was... I also feel like there was a bit of the side, but I also think anything that was in the back was more just him placing his hands on the back. Maybe yeah. a possible push, but it looked a bit more like maybe more could have lost his balance and fall forward. I believe there's no hands in the back rule now as well. So Yeah, so it has to actually be a push. So I think yeah. the way it's being adjudicated in the second half of the year, I think that's consistent with that one not being paid. And um, yeah, sometimes it just comes down to whether the ump Feels like paying it or not. But uh, <laughs> look, I think that's probably all right. The one that was a bit, also a bit funny in that moment was the high contact free for Papley. I, I, like, I it thought was it was a minimal. great mark, but the, the high contact, not so sure about. Yeah. Well, I guess the high contact, it almost looked like the ball could have actually been touched as well. Although yeah. it's like the type of touch that 
you don't expect them to pay. So I still think they would have paid the mark. But uh, yeah, I know a lot of people were in uproar about that decision and it didn't look great on the replay. But no. if you really look at it forensically, as we just sort of described there, I think they actually did make the right decision. It could have been. Yeah, they were right on it. Good umpiring there. Obviously, the the Collingwood supporters will help will hate us saying that, <laughs> but uh, that's okay. Uh, so Sydney got their one goal for the last quarter through Papley there as he goaled from about fifteen meters out, and it was still Collingwood who had all the momentum though, and uh, Sydney was increasingly looking like they were playing the last quarter to save it rather than win the game, which mm. is a very dangerous thing to do. Yep. So even though Collingwood was really going for it now and it seemed like they had their game in order with their wave run and their intercepting, it was still a struggle to make too many inroads until a long kick-in was marked by Majacek and it just dislodged as he hit the ground, but he did control it, so happy with that one as well. And another piece of open play, this time coming through the centre, saw a kick put to Hoskin Elliott's advantage and he went up for the mark Spills it, but quickly recovered to get the snap on line. So Great those goal. two goals there brought the margin back to under 10 points. So the surge mentality was in full force now for Collingwood, just going like men possessed. And it was actually Majacek's mother deep in the square that caused the ball to ricochet out to about 25 metres out. And it was Sidebottom who was getting there first. And he got the ball to boot as quickly as he could from 25 metres out. It wasn't pretty, but it jagged through. And with only two and a half minutes left on the clock or thereabouts, it was a two-point ball game. I love that goal. It was such a reactive, um, just toss it on the boot job from side bottom. And yeah, some of these goals just reminded me a little bit of that, um, that Nick Davis final. It was at the same end. And yeah, Hoskin Elliott's I thought was fantastic as well. And... It just typifies the way Collingwood plays. It just, it's just chaos in there and, yeah, they get their looks and they're very good with the, the opportunist goals. Absolutely. So let's go to the last minute or so. There's a lot happening. So Sydney's bringing it out of defence along the wing and there's a couple of huge contested marks, firstly to Franklin and then Hickey. So they get the ball in their front half and with... I think there's about 50 seconds left on the clock now. There's a stoppage in uh, the Ford 50. May even be a few less seconds than that. So somehow Collingwood manages to win the stoppage and sur- start to surge it forward with a bit of link up. Uh, Crisp gets on the end of it and drives long inside 50. It seemed like the players were diving around everywhere to try and get uh, on the ball. But eventually the ball uh, cannoned harmlessly into the post and that was the game. The Swans hold on by a single point and they're through to their first grand final since 2016. (laughs) (laughs) Magnificent. Well, great. Just for the neutral, it was fantastic. Fantastic. And right right to the very last second. Did you also see the bit of vision or hear about what uh, Darcy Moore did on, in that last play? So basically he, he took off he got forward, uh, yeah. from the back line, uh, leaving Franklin basically all by himself yep. inside 50, just banking on the fact that, you know, that's a goal to win. And uh, 
sprinting down. If you actually watch the playback, you can actually yeah. see as the ball gets kicked inside 50, you can see Darcy Moore's blonde hair flashing through. Uh, you wouldn't see it unless you were looking for it. And he's actually by himself in the goal square. So if Collingwood has any clean possession in that little uh, skirmish there, they would have won the game. So uh, do you mean like around the point when Dugowie nearly got the ball cleanly? Uh- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, sort of yeah. so when it's maybe. about sort of 40 metres out, you can, and there's that contest there, you can see Darcy Moore flashing through and basically going straight through to the goal square by himself. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it was a, a, a <laughs> risk that could have paid off. Yeah, so he's obviously taken the risk in the knowledge that they have to kick the goal and uh, he's basically created a spare man in the forward line, which isn't often there. But unfortunately for Collingwood, they weren't able to get a clean possession in that Ford 50 there. Swans did it just enough to hang on. But, uh, yeah, crazy uh, last few seconds there. And, obviously, Collingwood doing everything they could to push for the win in the last five minutes. And they almost got there. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was so much happening in that last few minutes. I mean, it felt like an eternity. <laughs> it really, even from about the four-minute mark, it just felt like there was so much happening. And it was like a quarter in itself. Uh, some great efforts um, from guys like uh, Tom Hickey. That was an excellent mark. Franklin also took a brilliant one. I think those two moments really helped the Swans to this victory. But uh, yeah, yeah, the Pies nearly pinched it and they wouldn't lay down. Absolutely not. So I know we've already been through a couple of the plays, but let's go into detail in a couple of the couple of these really key ones, and then uh, we'll finish off with a couple of questions. Yep. So let's go back to the first quarter. So there's 15 minutes left in the first quarter. I think this play typifies uh, the Swans' good play in the first half. So Parker was able to win the ball back at around half back, and he targeted Heaney on the wing. He went up for the mark, didn't mark it, but managed to get back onto the ball after some great pressure from other Swans players to dislodge the ball. And now it was Heaney who flicked the ball back onto Parker, who uh, found Buddy uh, with a short pass. He then went long, and we all know that Buddy is a fantastic field kick, and he found Reed just outside 50, who again went long. Collingwood to look, look to have this one covered, but the ball found a way to get a little bit out the back, and it was actually Dylan Stevens getting back onto the ball in the goal square and soccering through Sydney's second goal. Yep. So I really love that play, just uh, how hard the Swans' mids worked on the wing there when it didn't look like it was going to work. They still managed to get it back in their hands, really controlled it with some nice kicks there and uh, getting the reward in the square there. But, uh, yeah, I think that sort of typifies that link-up play that they got going in that first half. Yep, yep, some great Great examples there. <clears throat> All right. Let's go to number two. So uh, I think we're in the second quarter here. I've written first quarter, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, let me just have a quick look. Anyway, let, let's go through the play and we'll work, it, we'll work yeah. out whether it's in the first or second quarter. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a guessing game. <clears throat> so Darcy more easily outmaneuvers his opponent on the true center wing and he sees uh, how seemingly by himself in the center square. The kick is read perfectly, uh, and in a full stride, it's uh, McInerney who's taking off towards goal. How is powerless to stop him? The Swans 
now have a six-goal lead and they might just be on their way to the grand final. So I think we both know that that's actually in the third quarter. So we've gone from the first quarter to the third quarter there. So another massive play. Mm, yep, yep, crucial. Just does it look like Collingwood might be getting the game back on their terms a little bit? They're now down by six goals. Yep. No, it was a great move by McInerney. He was right on it. And, uh, yep, finished truly. All right, we're still in the third quarter here. Six minutes and 25 seconds left on the clock. So Papley spills the ball inside the Swans attacking 50, about 35 out, and Jordan Dugowie gathers. And he holds onto the ball just that fraction of a second longer to take the right option. The Pies are now able to link up with hands and run, and eventually it gets to the Rolls-Royce Pendlebury running through the center square, who caresses a kick to Ginevan, mm. who's about 45 out, and uh, it's right on his distance, but he gets the long straight kick online, and the Pies are right in this one. Yeah, he gave that a ride. Beautiful kick from Ginevan, and yep, they were coming. Yeah, so that was the type of play that Collingwood were trying to find that yeah. whole first half, and often... The Swans weren't just letting, weren't quite letting them have it. So uh, it was a bit of a shift there that they were able to get a play like that going where they were able to go basically straight through the center. Yeah. All right. So the last three plays are all in that frenetic last quarter. So the first play, we go to 15 minutes remaining. So Moore wins the ball back on the wing and gets past two opponents with a slap of the arm. Majacek contests well and flicks it out to Crisp. And then onto Goey, who palms it down in the direction of uh, Lipsinki, <coughs> who puts it into space. Goey goes in hard again and tries to get the ball, but he's actually tackled. And after a couple of other tackles laid by Sydney, somehow the ball squirts out to Bianco, who slots it on the run. And now the margin is just 16 points. So that's that first crucial goal of the last quarter that the pies desperately needed. With with I remember Dugowie getting possession of the ball here. <laughs> Do you think the ball got knocked out of his hand, or was that one of those um, potential holding the balls that they let go in finals? No, no, I think it got knocked out. Oh, I think it got knocked f- out. Firstly, yeah. no, it's not so much it got knocked out. I just don't think he ever like had enough For possession of the ball to actually say he's holding it. Yeah. No, so he never really had control of it. That's fair like, enough. Like yeah. That's the way I saw it. <laughs> no, I think that's fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're down to the last two. We now go to four minutes 30 left on the clock. So it's the Collingwood defence this time, spoiling it down to the edge of 50. And it went 20 metres uh, back outside 50. So it was actually Darcy Cameron, the Ruckman, who was able to get to the ball first and hand off infield. And uh, Dugowie was then able to flick it onto Pendlebury, who found uh, Josh Dacos, who just took off and uh, putting the ball perfectly to Hoskin Elliott's advantage, who goes up for sort of a half specky, doesn't quite bring the ball down, but quickly gets back onto the ball. And the snap is true and online from 40 metres out. And in a flash, the margin is just nine points. That was such a smart kick from Josh Dacos as well. He just put it perfectly into it where only Hoskin Elliott would end up getting it? Yeah, absolutely. He'd put it right on his side of the contest. Yeah. Probably should have marked it, but it, it was yeah. almost better that he didn't mark it because I feel like his percentages on the snap were probably higher yeah, than if so. he had a set shot. So, luck's a fortune there. Yes. 
All right, and we've got our last play. Two minutes, 47 left on the clock. The ball came out to Darcy Cameron from the Collingwood 50, and uh, he belted it back in long and high. Somehow no one even touched the ball as it bounced, and it was Florent who was receiving in the square, but he was quickly being closed down by Majacek, who was diving across his boot and just managed to get a small touch on it to affect the kick. And now the ball squirts, squirts out in the direction of side bottom. And he's quickly jammed it on the, on the boot. Wasn't pretty at all, but it went through the goals, and that's all that counts. And now it's just a three-point lead with a couple of minutes for the Pies to try and get the win. Obviously, they don't quite get there, but they had the chance to do the Collingwood miracle in the prelim final. <laughs> that's um, that's really well spotted, by the way, because I thought that McCartan was just rushed into a crap kick, but I think you're right. Majek got a finger on it. Yeah, he definitely did. So the desperation of Majek in this last quarter was fantastic. He hadn't done a lot up mm. until then, but basically takes a contested mark at the top of the square. Uh, he's involved a few other times and, yeah, some big uh, pressure there to actually get this last goal. Yeah, he's a good player. So a couple of questions to round this one off. We've done a lot on this game, but it was a fantastic game, obviously. So, Johnny, yes. did the Swans play the last quarter in the right way? Uh, look, <clears throat> you can understand why a team goes into their shell a bit, and I guess sometimes it does seem logical to, you know, I guess shut it down a bit and, you know, get guys back and, can I guess play tempo footy, control the pace of the game. It's it's only human nature, really. And um, uh, it is easy to say things like, well, they should have just kept going. They've got to keep attacking, attack, attack. You can give up goals that way too. Um, but I do think in this case, the lead wasn't enough. They definitely needed... They kicked three goals for the second half then. Like, they need... Yeah, the, really dried up. Yeah, they, they, they just needed a little bit more... To get that psychological edge back, maybe one or two more, I think, in that last quarter would have would have iced it. Uh, but they left that door open and Collingwood were happy to go through it. Yeah, it definitely did seem like the pattern of the game had changed. And uh, I suppose Collingwood, uh, sorry, the Swans weren't taking it on quite as much. So, yeah, maybe they were slightly playing into Collingwood's hands. As well, but I think it does have a bit to do with what Collingwood were doing. They were much more effective at intercepting what the Swans were trying to do. So, yeah, it's hard to know exactly, but it did mm. seem like Sydney's intention to score wasn't as high as the first three quarters, especially not as high as the first half. Yep. So, next question What did Sydney do to avoid the fate of so many other teams where they're getting overrun by Collingwood in the last quarter. Was it good luck or good management? Um, I'm not sure if they had any better management than any other teams that have succumbed to Collingwood's comeback ability. But uh, I just think that at the end of the day, they made a few more plays where it mattered. Those two big marks, I thought, Franklin, Hickey, I just think that even the Papley goal, really, he stood up when it counted. I just think they had players that made plays where other teams haven't. 
in the past. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's maybe the class of the, the Swans just shining yeah. through a little bit. There were Definitely. a couple of times in this quarter, as you described, where they stand up and do the right thing. And even a couple of times where they just held onto the ball for a little while may not seem like a big thing, but it did just take that little bit of time off the clock. Whereas I think some other teams that we've seen against uh, Collingwood this year have just sort of panicked a little bit and uh, really haven't executed the fundamentals. So I don't think the Swans panicked at any stage. And yeah, maybe they didn't play the game in the last quarter in the best possible way that gave them the best chance of winning, but they still did just enough right to make it that little bit harder for Collingwood to get over the top, maybe. Yep. All right. Uh, So do you think Collingwood will have any regrets about how they played this game, Johnny? When all is said and done, they lose the game. It's a fantastic game, but they still lost. Will they have any regrets? Um, I think they would have liked to have started the game better. You could point to that as maybe the difference in the game, but, you know, I don't think that there's a lot more that they could have done, really. I mean, they were very, super accurate. They got the game onto their terms eventually where they were playing the fast and daring game and they, they didn't give up. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know where exactly where they'd go from here, but I don't think they'd, they'd die wondering. Uh, you know, football can be brutal sometimes and you're just on the wrong end of a result. And <laughs> Yeah, look. That's for sure. I'm not sure. Look, maybe there's a few things that could have been done. But, uh, you know, this is what you go up against. This is what you have to rise up above to get to the big dance. So, yeah, I'm not sure. What, what do you reckon? I think the fact that they got the game back on their terms in the second half, they can take a lot of solace in that. But at the same time, they held Sydney to three goals in the second half and still didn't win. So, I think it would be a hard loss to take in a lot of ways. I think they gave a really good account of themselves. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they could have just done something slightly different to get over the line. I guess maybe it's just a bit of luck of the draw there. But I suppose when you can keep a team to three goals in half of footy, you'd expect to be able to get over the top of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Especially if... uh if one of them is a goalless quarter, not that that happened, but if you, yeah, if you're keeping a team from scoring for a long period of time, yeah, I don't often see them win. But um, yeah, and when Papley kicked that goal, I think they hadn't actually kicked a goal for 35 yeah, minutes of game time or something like that. So it had been a long time. That's right. That's right. And look, who knows? They're gonna have, there's gonna be a few new additions for Collingwood. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious over this trade period. So. I don't know, maybe it gives them a little bit of a, a new avenue to goal and some new ideas. Yeah, so what type of player do Collingwood need? Obviously, there's some uh, word in the media about who they're getting. Obviously, McStay has been one we've known about for quite a while, but is there a type of player that you think they need, Johnny, or were these couple of additions that are coming in that'll be sort of enough to get them to, you know, reload again and give this whole thing another shot next year with that, you know, pretty good case for optimism. Yeah, so starting with McStay, um, I think he, he'd be a, a decent get for Collingwood. Um, I think, I can't think, there's a couple of others. I think Frampton from Adelaide might be another one. 
and I'm not quite sure. Ah, uh, yeah, Bobby Hill from GWS. I and think, Bobby well. Hill, exactly. So, you know, they're all decent, yeah, decent talents. But uh, yeah, it's not obvious, I guess, how they'd fit in. But I don't know. I still feel that they do need a key presence up forward. I think they did really well this year, but I think now there's going to be a lot of film on that forward line and. I'm not playing down how they went this year, but I feel like they did catch a bit of lightning in a bottle with it. Like Jamie Elliott was very healthy and in very good form. Uh, yeah, my check does what he does, but I don't know. I just feel like they could use another key post down there. I wonder as well if Darcy Cameron continues his good form into next year. Uh, and yeah, like with Grundy leaving, I. Uh, you know, it might be time for Grundy to leave, but uh, will they regret that? Will they feel that maybe he was a better ruckman than they thought? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Like, obviously, there's no guarantees going forward. Obviously, they think McStay can help them, but he's not your number one forward. No. I suppose Collingwood's finding what a lot of teams have found for a long time. It's really hard to get an established key forward in that can have an impact. So yeah. it's still... I guess Mychek is doing a good job and like he's not your typical key forward, but I guess he's doing enough and uh, yeah, maybe just have to try and find one in the draft and hope they come on a little quicker than you would think. I don't know. Like yeah. who, who could they actually get if they were, you know, targeting a key forward? I'm not even sure. Yeah, it's, well, as we know, there's not that many available at the moment. Maybe a couple next year out of contract, but yeah, yeah, it's a very difficult very difficult proposition. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking with the fires. Uh, yeah, to the, I just yeah, I don't. I'm, I'm just thinking like, do they do they need another ruckman? Like, should they have? Should they maybe split some time? Because Cameron's not too bad when he goes up forward. Maybe if they had someone pinch hit in the ruck and they can. Do a bit of a tandem thing, that could help out. It's a very hard one. It's a very yes. Let's very leave that one. to the yeah. list managers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're not. We're definitely not the list right. managers. So we've done about forty minutes on Collingwood Sydney. Obviously, a fantastic game. Let's move on to the other preliminary final now. Yes, of course, this was Geelong and the Brisbane Lions at the MCG on Friday night. So I did uh, head along to this one, and uh, great atmosphere to start the game. Uh, it was actually a little bit of a strange start to this one. It really felt like each team was kind of feeling the other out and uh, didn't quite know what was happening there for the first 10 or so minutes. Uh, it wasn't like, you know, bad or anything. It was just like a weird way the game was being played. The game just didn't quite settle into a rhythm. But uh, yeah, Geelong did get a couple of early-ish goals courtesy of uh, long-range efforts from Dangerfield, which was great to see. Often he isn't the most accurate shot for goal. So uh, one of those was in the, within the first minute as well, so that yep. was a great sign for the Cats. Yeah, he launched uh, that one. And the Cats were slowly looking a little bit more confident, and uh, it did show by creating uh, more scoring chances than Brisbane, and they had four goals on the board by the end of the quarter. Uh, Brisbane, for their part, were looking pretty good as well, especially when they were able to link up with a run between the wings, but it was a little few and far between uh, because they only had the 20% for 
Ford 50 efficiency there as well. So it all added up to a 14-point Geelong lead there. And uh, question I have for you, Johnny, is uh, was 14 points a good reflection of the way this first quarter was played? Um, I think that it probably flattered the lines a bit. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, we saw Geelong come in to this game and I, I saw a team that meant business. Uh, they knew exactly how to, knew how to handle the occasion. It may not have panned out exactly how they wanted to at the start, but I think they were well on top in in all the key statistics. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was like they'd been given all the answers on the exam, but you know, <laughs> it felt like they were doing an open book exam while Brisbane were doing like a conventional exam and, and cramming study at the last minute. Everything looked a lot harder for Brisbane yeah. almost the whole night. So it, it was close-ish in this first quarter. But uh, yes, we'll see that it doesn't stay close for that long. So let's go to the second quarter. So the Cats absolutely dominated this quarter, barely giving Brisbane a, si- a sniff. The game really should have been put to bed, but for some absolute horror goal-kicking from Tom Hawkins. Mm-hmm. He was missing... Uh, Lots of set shots. Often they weren't from very far out at all, so definitely had the yips there going for a little while. But the Cats seemed to be completely shutting down Brisbane's attacking forays. So only 19% inside 50 efficiency. Uh, pretty diabolical for the Lions there. So, uh, yeah, the question I have here, Johnny, is uh, why couldn't the Lions move the ball, particularly coming out of defensive 50 it looked like they just couldn't get anything going all night. They couldn't get any run. They couldn't get a contest. Uh, it was just pretty awful for Lions supporters, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, there was <clears throat> one thing in particular that I did notice, and it was that um, for whatever reason, and look, it, everything looks smart in hindsight, but um, it seemed like Chris Fagan was very content to let Tom Stewart just roam around free in the long back line. And that was a big key to shutting down a lot of Brisbane's attacks. Uh, quite often they'd end up forcing Brisbane to switch when they didn't want to. And uh, they'd bring some pressure up the field and force them into the hack kicks into the 50. And they'd just usually end up with number 44 waiting to mop up. Uh, it's a very versatile back line, Geelong. Like they can... There's more than, pardon the pun, there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's, uh, yeah, guys who can really sort of take that loose role. But, yeah, Stuart was fantastic, I thought. And I I don't know. I kind of feel like Fagan made a bit of a mistake there. I think Stuart's such an unselfish player as well, and he'll go out of his way to shut down attacks and help a teammate. I don't know. They were really having trouble breaking Geelong down, and yeah, I think that was something they could, something that, had they noticed it earlier, they would have, they would have made a move, I reckon. Yeah, Tom Stewart just seemed to be in the right position all night, he was just getting to the right position, marking with confidence, he was making things incredibly difficult, but yeah, it just was happening time after time with that defensive 50 transition, they just couldn't win a contest coming out, they couldn't find the free man, it just, they had so many chances and it just kept breaking down. Yeah, and I don't know, I kind of feel like, uh, I don't know if the Brisbane team was 100% in sync, 
I just felt like they come off these two plucky wins and oh, good, great wins, and they deserve a lot of credit. But I just couldn't help but feel that they were. That well, I felt that they were a bit fortunate to be there, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if a few on their team thought that as well, <laughs> and uh, maybe just a bit overawed by it. Whereas I looked at the Geelong side and I just felt like every single player expected to be there and they knew exactly what they needed to do. So, yeah. Yeah, that ruthless edge that Brisbane found in that second half last week really didn't seem to be there. No. I don't know whether that was, you know, the mindset a little bit or it was just, you know, Geelong were making things really difficult for them. But, yeah, it all just looked a little bit too hard for Brisbane and they just looked completely nullified here. Yeah, it was definitely a Geelong kind of game quite early on and stayed that way. Let's jump to the third quarter. So there's an avalanche of goals in the third where Geelong completely broke the Lions, seven goals to two. The Cats were finding space and linking up at will. They were full of run and getting everyone involved. Stewart imperious in the back half, always in the right spot, and Brisbane just couldn't get anything going. So we've talked a bit about Brisbane. What impressed you most about Geelong in this game, Johnny? Yeah, quite a lot, actually. Um, but probably the, the biggest thing why Geelong did so well was I just looked to the leadership on the field. They they just have it in spades. They've got so many guys who have been there before and in decent form, too. Guys like Danger, Hawkins, Selwood, Stewart. There's some serious worries on that side. And, you know, you look across to Brisbane... Yeah, look, Zorko is capable of a good game, and he led well against Melbourne. Lockie Neal leads by example, but if things aren't going their way, we've said this a number of times, Dan, if things aren't going their way, who's going to help wrestle back momentum for that team? Who's going to put that bone-jarring tackle in or a last-ditch smother to get the team going? Geelong have a number of players that will do that, and that's what I liked, their desperation. They, they're a team that really plays to the whistle, so quite often you'll see other teams, they'll be happy to, just very little things like if the ball's heading out of bounds, they're happy to see it over. Whereas I see Geelong, they're like fighting for every inch and if there's a chance they can keep something in and start something, they'll go for it. Yep, they're always on the lookout for those opportunities, that's for sure. Yeah. So quarter four, the sting had completely gone out of the game. It was a complete performance from Geelong. Brisbane had stopped and they'd been stopped in their tracks by a very professional Geelong outfit. Some of the link-up goals to Geelong in this game were a thing of beauty. There was one in particular that ended with a Stengel check side on the rung from the wrong side for a right footer after some fantastic link-up play there. Dangerfield, for his part, was dominant around the clearances and probably his best finals game in I don't know how long, mm. maybe ever. Fantastic. And they really just had winners all over the ground. No passengers. So a couple of questions to finish off here, Johnny, but does Geelong actually have a weakness? Oh, gee. Yeah, I think I said a few weeks ago that although they're not the same type of side as Melbourne last year, it's very similar to how we felt that Melbourne didn't really have a weakness last year. I feel that about Geelong this year. It's just so hard to see the chink in the armour. Um, you know, they've got a, a very yeah, versatile backline, as we've said. Uh, they've got a, a midfield that, you know, is composed, maybe lacks a, a bit of speed, but you wouldn't know it the way that they're playing at the moment. 
and a forward line that's arguably the best in the comp. So, and they've also got some depth. They've got uh, there's you know Max Holmes, maybe a, a tough one to get up. He's been very good as well, but they've got uh, you know Parf at Menengola and uh, you know maybe one or two others waiting in the wings. So there's depth there as well. Um, I don't know, Dent. What do you reckon? I can't see any real weakness here. I suppose if they do have a weakness, a game against the Brizzy Lions, like that is probably not going to show it. But uh, they do look like a very complete team at the moment. Players look like they're completely bought in. They've adjusted to this new game style and uh, really, really want this one. They've been at it for a long time, a lot of this group, and uh, they want that next premiership. We, next one since 2011, obviously. That's right. And we've talked about the ruck and how it may not be as big of an issue this year for Geelong. And, and this this game showed that as well. Like you had Reece Stanley starting at the centre bounces, but as soon as he took that hit out, he would drop back. And uh, Mark Blitzarves ended up taking the other stoppages. So it seems to work at the moment. And if you wanted to say a weakness, you could say that. But right now, it's not looking like a weakness. So what do you put Geelong's improvement this year down to? Yeah, look, it's it's a, it's really impressive. So, you know, they they obviously have sped up the game a bit, but it's yeah, they they just got they've got a lot of a lot of conviction in getting in their belief to get the job done, but it's also they do the simple things very very well. They just win contested ball, run real hard, and, yeah, chain away with quick handball. It's, um, yeah, it's really good to watch. It's really good to watch, but they've also got the personnel to do it. But those are the three things. I just think they've tweaked their game plan, but they just do those simple things right. Win the footy, quick hands, run hard. <laughs> it's all working for Geelong. Obviously, they're coming up against a very good opposition in the Sydney Swans, and hopefully we get a good game. Geelong are heavy favourites. I think they're currently sitting at about a dollar fifty. So mm, that's, sh- or maybe it's a dollar sixty. Either way, they're shorter favourites than Melbourne were last year against the Bulldogs. So uh, yes, they are definitely favoured to take out the grand final. It doesn't mean a whole lot in the scheme of things, but uh, I suppose they are the favourites. Yep, yep. Um, I've got a quick question about the lines. Um, so we saw Lockie Neal get triple teamed, and, you know, all that stuff as usual. You know, sometimes it's just stop Neal, stop Brisbane. Um, but something I've noticed is why... Okay, so when teams know that one of their players, their best players, is getting tagged, why do so many teams not do anything about it then? Like, they don't provide any help. They don't shepherd that tagger. They don't sort of stick up for their teammate. I just feel like no team reacts to this. Is it just because everyone's so system drilled now that they can't be, you know, they haven't got room in their cranial capacity to think about things like this? I'm not sure. Really, the answer doesn't spring to mind here. You Like, sometimes you do see it when teams are, you know, really in sync with each other and they'll, you know, go out of their way to help a teammate who is getting sat on or I guess these are the sorts of things that are normally talked about before like the game. So they're a bit more aware of it, but I don't know, maybe players just aren't really that aware. They're a bit more, yeah, like engrossed in, you know, what they're trying to do with the game style or just what they're trying to do as an individual. 
maybe it just doesn't enter their thinking that much. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I don't think it does. But one thing's for sure, the Lions need more grunt. They need to be more ruthless. Uh, maybe Chris Fagan needs to take a leaf out of Chris Scott's book and look at exactly how this team plays and, yeah, make some tweaks because time and time again, this has shown that well, their team has shown that it's not getting the job done. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just not quite sure where Brisbane go from here. Obviously, they'll have better ideas than us, but they've gone to the well a lot of times now. And obviously, they got a couple of finals victories in this series, and that's commendable, but they still look like they're a long way off it. And yeah. what is going to be the difference that actually puts Brisbane over the edge? Not not a lot has changed in the last two or three years, really. No, not really. It's essentially the same personnel. And, you know, maybe they'll get another decent midfielder in. I'm hearing a bit of talk about Josh Dunkley at the moment. Could be what they need. But, uh, yeah, I think something needs to be done also with the way they go about their game style. Um, Yeah, so the 2022 AFL Grand Final is set, and for the first time ever, it'll be contested between the Geelong Cats and the Sydney Swans. Um, Yeah, really looking forward to this one, Dan. I think it's fair to say that these are the two best teams of the year. We've got feel-good stories galore. We've got Paddy Dangerfield getting another shot at that elusive medal. Buddy Franklin gets another crack and his chance to deliver his first with the Swans. Stengel, McCartan, you know, they could only have dreamt of this 12 months ago. Jeremy Cameron, Gary Rowan against his old side on the big stage. The list goes on and on. But my first question for you, Dan, about this grand final is, what is the best way to make a grand final? Is it the cruisy way that Geelong did it in their prelim? with the ability to stick the queue in the rack late? Or is it the ultimate test that takes every last bit of your side's character like Sydney on Saturday night? Is there a correct answer for this? <laughs> well, I think you can obviously do it either way. But yeah, I suppose quite often when the team has their really hard game in the prelim, sometimes the grand final, at least on paper, looks a little bit easier. But I suppose, like, just from a psychological point of view, you know, the Swans have had that close game and, you know, they na- they understand and know that they were able to perform under that pressure. And, you know, if they're faced with a similar situation in the grand final or, you know, just whenever the game is close, maybe they'll have that to draw on. Whereas Geelong, obviously, haven't had that recent experience. Not that they haven't had experiences in close games, but... I think it's a little bit different when it's a prelim final. So I think in that terms of that, you know, score, I would say advantage Swans, but I'm not sure how big a difference it's going to make at the end of the day. But if I had to choose, I would probably have chosen the Swans path rather than Geelong's. What about you? Uh, Yeah, look, I don't think it makes a massive difference either, but I would also choose that path if it came down to it. Also the fact that, yeah, Geelong have played two games in the last five weeks. One was competitive, one wasn't. They also finished the season with, I guess, two easier games against Gold Coast and West Coast. Maybe it could come back to bite, but I think all of that goes out the window when they run out on grand final day. And, yeah, it's just about who's more ready in that moment. Um, next question. How much will the pain of the 2020 grand final burn in the mind for Geelong Dan? I mean... There's eight players on this team that weren't even there that night. Is this grand final almost irrelevant when it comes to the one this Saturday? Doesn't sound like that long ago, does it? But it 
feels like a very long time ago. Yeah, it does. <laughs> you think, like, I'm not so sure it's that particular grand final. I think just the cumulative effect of getting there so getting so close so many times. Yeah, that's probably what's going to be driving this group more than what that particular game, because. Uh, yeah, obviously they've been there or thereabouts for the last decade and haven't got the job done. And I think they recognise that this is their best chance and uh, I'm sure they'll do everything they can to make it a reality. What's your thinking on this one? Yeah, I think it's like, yeah, it was a while ago. Well, it feels like a while ago. It was a funny season that year. I think that, yeah, they've got the guys there who are, yeah, they're going to do their best not to let it slip. But, yeah, it's going to be – I think it'll be out of their mind pretty quickly. Um, but I guess it leads into another one because the last time these two sides played was in round two at the SCG, and that night was the night that Buddy Franklin kicked his thousandth goal. I mean, that was quite a while ago now in the scheme of the season, and there was so much happening that night. You know, it was almost more of a circus than an AFL game. I mean – does, can the Swans take anything out of that game? I don't think so. It was a weird game <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Obviously, the Franklin shadow yep. loomed large over it. I think what it does show is that just on a very basic level, the Swans game matches up well against Geelong. Obviously, Geelong are well-practiced and their game wasn't as in as good order then as it was later in the season. But I do think that the Swans actually match up quite well against Geelong compared to some other teams. So for that reason, I would be slightly heartened about that as a Sydney supporter, but I wouldn't read too much into the fact that no. you know they won that game all, all the way back then. Uh, it was a bit of a strange game. No, I totally agree with that. Um, got a few stats here to go through, and this is pretty much going to demonstrate that both teams are excellent with offense. Uh, so... Yeah, disposal differential, Geelong plus 12.7 is sixth. Uh, Sydney, 10.8, eight. Uh, scores from inside 50 plus 7.2 for Geelong. That's first, plus 4.6 for Sydney is second. Inside 50s, Geelong first, Sydney fourth. Tackles, Geelong fifth, Sydney third. And yeah, pretty much all the way down. Score from turnovers, Geelong first, Sydney third. Um could this be a high-scoring grand final, Then Could we actually see a shootout? <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Like, If the first half of the Sydney game is anything to go by, maybe it will be open or at least part of the game. They are, based on those stats, you know, they are teams that can score, which uh, is half the battle. I don't know. I wouldn't expect it to be too much of a shootout, but there might be a quarter or two that, where the goals do flow a little. Yeah, where it uh, opens up. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, look, I think it, it's always hard to see in a in a grand final uh, the game just suddenly opening up and having scoring left, right, and centre. But I definitely think there'll be patches where it, there's a lot of goals in in quick succession. But uh, yeah, look. Someone like Jeremy Cameron, I think, could be the X factor in this game with his ability to get up and down the ground, get back. Um, but on the subject of forwards, if Sam Reed misses, how big a deal is this for Sydney's forward structure? Huge. I think Sam Reed is kind of the piece that actually sort of makes everything work in a way. Obviously, yeah. 
They've got, you know, other tall players there, like McDonald, Lance Franklin. But I think Reed's probably, at this point, the most athletic. <laughs> he's got, like, sort of the highest point he's taking it at, and he's just really important for their structure, getting up the ground. Uh, yeah, he's uh, he would be a huge loss. Hopefully he plays because I want to see Sydney at full strength this game yep. to give them as good a chance as possible. But, you know, if he doesn't play, they'll find a way to, you know, rejig the forward line. But, you know, when Geelong have such good backs, I think they need that extra real quality tool. So I think he would be a huge loss. What do you think, Johnny? I think so too. I think you just, you need that foil. You need that, I guess, sort of crash the pack forward and bring the smaller guys into it. Um, I think Tom Papley excels with someone like Reid there, but even... If Reed does miss, I feel like Papley's going to need to kick maybe a few more for them to have a chance. So it, I think it's a, a real cumulative effect if he's not there. So, yeah, I hope he gets up as well because I think you want to see both these sides go at each other full strength. Um, one more question, quick question. With a team of older players, how is it that Geelong looks so quick? <laughs> hmm... Well, I think the injection of some youth has definitely yeah. helped here. Guys like Holmes and Close are quick. <laughs> so yep. they do have some quicker guys. Obviously, Stengel's in there as well. He's quick. So I think just putting some of these quicker pieces around has definitely helped. But also, like you don't necessarily have to be quick to actually get the ball moving quickly. Yep. Uh, you know, you can use you know, quick possessions to actually get the ball flowing very quickly. Like, I don't think you would call Melbourne a quick team, but last year they could move the ball extremely quickly when they wanted to. Yeah. So I guess, uh, you know, there's more than just one way to get that quick movement. You don't just have to be running the whole time. Obviously the running helps, but actually how quickly you can move the ball on and link up uh Makes a big difference. Also helps to have players who can accelerate at a contest as well, get that a few extra steps on the opposition. Opens everything up, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I, t- I agree with that. Um, lastly, we're going to go through our tips. Dan, who's your tip and who's your Norm Smith? I'm hoping for a close game. Let's say Geelong by eight points and... Uh, I would love if uh, someone other than a midfielder won this. And, you know, Geelong has been a pretty sort of even contribution through the midfield. So unless Dangerfield goes nuclear, I feel like maybe this is the type of game that they might actually give it to a forward or a back. So mm-hmm. I'm going to go for Tom Stewart. Uh, uh-huh. Well, I think this one's a, it's a harder one to pick than, uh, than those odds you said before, I reckon. I think it'll be a really good game. Uh, I think it'll be the best grand final in a few years, to be honest. And guys like Joel Selwood, Patrick Dangerfield, they understand this is the best chance they're probably ever going to get. I think the Cats have the game plan, the quality, and the versatility to get this one done. You can very much say the same for the Swans, but I just think this one's going to come down to that little bit of extra experience and desire. So I'm going Geelong by 16 points, and I actually also had Tom Stewart for the Norm Smith medal. <laughs> That's why I did the little chuckle. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, so we, that is the grand final. Uh, back to the day time, isn't it, Dan? 
Yes, uh, I will be there. So fantastic. Burton and I have got our reserved seats, bottom level in the MCC. So that'll be great fun. First grand final there since 2019. And we remember what a hiding it was that day handed out by Richmond to the Giants. So hopefully we can get a more uh, of a contest on you know, fantastic day and uh, hopefully the weather's not too bad either. But, uh, you know, two cracking teams. Uh, yeah, it's all set up to be a great grand final, as you said. Oh, certainly is. We're looking forward to it. Um, we're just going to quickly recap the VFL grand final that was on yesterday between the Casey Demons and the Southport Sharks. I was actually fortunate enough to get along to this one. Oh, nice one. Yeah, yeah, at Princess Park. Did it rain? Uh, it certainly <laughs> did. Certainly did. <laughs> <laughs> There's a bit of weather around. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so, yeah, having lost just one game for the season, the Demons entered this game as the red-hot favourites, but no one told the Sharks this as they looked the better side early on and took a seven-point lead at quarter time. Uh, this was a Southport side boasting some decent XFL players like a Richmond Premiership player Jacob Townsend, ex-Port player Boyd Woodcock, and ex-Melbourne player Jake Lockhart. Uh, the first 10 or so minutes of the game was probably all that we would see of dry weather football as the hard rain started to tumble. Uh, yeah, we're sitting in the legend stand undercover and that felt like a very good decision because the rain was just <laughs> falling all around us. Uh, the Demons would wrestle things back onto their term, held some good field position and got the lead by halftime by a goal. Uh, the rain started to come down even harder in the third quarter, and at times it was pretty difficult to see anything, but the momentum was <laughs> well and truly Casey's way when club favourite Jimmy Munro snapped a beauty from congestion to put them 13 points up. He'd actually go on to have 17 tackles for the day. The Crazy numbers. Oh, huge, huge. Um, the Sharks went over two quarters without kicking a goal till Townsend bobbed up again to keep them in touch, but it was instantly... Answered by Melbourne-listed player Bailey Laurie with a major. The Demons led by 15 points at three-quarter time. Fourth quarter started with the milkshake himself, Jake Milksham, dobbing a stunner from outside 50, putting Casey 20 points up. And Jeez, that's a good effort in the way, oh, ab- outside 50. Absolutely, yeah. He really got onto that one. And in a wet game like this one, 20-point lead's always worth more. There was a visible lightning strike coming from the west. Oh, shit. And after the initial <laughs> shock, you could hear nearly every second Casey or Melbourne fan murmuring about that round 21 clash against West Coast in Perth <laughs> last year. Uh, yeah, thought they might have stopped for, for a moment. That pressed on, though. And Melksham squeezed through a close-range dribbler to shut the door on the Sharks. Then he and Mitch Brown added two more as the Demons ran out 32-point victors at Icon Park. Uh, the Norm Goss... Great win. Yeah, no, fantastic medal. Oh, sorry, fantastic win. But the Norm Goss medal went to ex-Melbourne listed player and another Casey favourite, Mitch White, who had 29 disposals and 13 tackles. Some other good performers, Luke Dunstan with 30 and 9 tackles. Kate Chandler, 23 possessions and 7. Munro, 21 touches and a goal. And, of course, Jake Milksham with four priceless goals in shocking conditions. Credit to Sam Wiedemann as well who battled hard in the ruck all day. And the sun finally came out for the first time that day as the Casey Demons lifted the Premiership Cup. So um, <laughs> uh, did you catch any of this game, Dan? Uh, I did watch the second quarter. It was kind of, uh, yeah, busy with a few things around the house. But, uh, yeah, it was an absolute slog. And that was probably even before it started raining a lot. But, uh, yeah, it looked like... Uh, 
Casey was sort of wrestling back the momentum while I was watching. And yeah, they were moving the ball quite well, even though it yeah. was wet. And uh, yeah, uh, Van Ruyen didn't do a whole lot, but what I saw, I liked. He's a good size and hopefully he can have an impact for Melbourne next year. Same here. Already very uh, very big in stature. And yeah, I think another preseason will help. Um, yeah, good to list some silverware. And you've got to give some credit to the list management at Melbourne. Uh, it looks like we've got good depth. And for the Casey side to only lose one game this season, that's a massive achievement. So, what do you, what, Just quickly, what did you think of uh, Bailey Laurie? Yeah, a lot. Like his goal was great, but um, he does go in and out of games still at this point. And um, yeah, I just like to see a little bit more consistency across the four quarters. I think he's got such good skill. But uh, yeah, maybe another preseason, and it'd be great to see him get his debut next year. So is he playing as a midfielder or as a wingman? Uh, it looked like he was more. Sort of on the wider, yeah, maybe wing flank, I'd say. Wing flank, uh, yeah, okay. But yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe next year we'll see some more minutes in the, in the coal face. Yes. Interesting. Obviously, it was a relatively high pick, but uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, we'll see. There we go. Another another year of development, and yeah, he may be ready to stake his claim for a spot. Well, that is the end for this week's. Oh, massive weekend of a, a preliminary final action and uh, yeah, all sorts of stuff. Also, congratulations to Paddy Cripps winning the Brandley Medal. And uh, thanks to you, Dan, for coming on. Yes, just really quickly, it was Cripps's superhuman performance against Collingwood trying to get Carlton over the line in that heartbreaker that got him the three votes and the win, the Brownlow. So fantastic game and bit of a consolation prize there it was definitely uh it was a guaranteed three voter that one wasn't it yeah yeah you knew that one was coming yep yep absolutely not even the umpires could stuff no no not, <laughs> not a chance uh but yeah we'll be back next week to recap the grand final uh, it's gonna be a, i think it'll be a great game this one and yeah hopefully we've got some good weather as well for it i haven't checked this forecast for that but uh yeah no it's gonna be great best of luck to all geelong and sydney fans And in the meantime, we'll catch you soon. Bye for now.